Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrow Knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is our fourth episode in a 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Before we get into the section of the movie we'll be talking about today, a bit of business. Hasten, we got our first audio message from a listener. Oh, fantastic. And we're so honored to be featuring the Tomorrowland story of Max Fagan. My name is Max Fagan, I'm an aerospace engineer, and this is my Tomorrowland story. I'm an aerospace engineer and aspiring astronaut, and I work at a company that builds rockets. A colleague and I went to see Tomorrowland the week it came out, and the movie spoke to me in a way that few other movies ever had. The culmination of the Pinvitation sequence, where a ridiculously youthful cross-section of humanity casually taking their spaceship to the stars is portrayed as both wonderful and normal, Well, that scene was and still is a sure way to get me weeping tears of joy. It reminded me so much of why I wanted to be an aerospace engineer in the first place, to make that kind of space travel normal. Well, about a month after the movie came out, one of the rockets we had worked on exploded on launch while carrying cargo to the International Space Station. Losing a vehicle is the second worst thing that can happen in this industry, the only worst thing being losing a vehicle when there is crew on board. So I felt horribly discouraged and wasn't able to work effectively for the rest of the day. But the morning after that, when I came into work, I discovered that a colleague I had seen the movie with had left a Tomorrowland pin on my desk. It was a small gesture, but I treasured that they had done it. It reminded me of the movie's themes of optimism in the face of adversity, and that it's okay to be disappointed by our failures as long as we learn from them and never give up. I wear that Tomorrowland pin now on my badge lanyard with all my other space mission pins. So if you're at an aerospace conference sometime, and you see someone walking around with a Tomorrowland pin hanging between a Space Shuttle Atlantis pin and a mini Mars flag, please stop and say hi. Us dreamers have to stick together. Max, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. What an amazing story, yeah. Incredible. I feel like Max's experience with Tomorrowland speaks so much to the varying levels you can accept this movie on. You know, his friend gave him a gesture that kind of represented the themes of the movie in terms of not stigmatizing failure and getting back on the horse and engaging in the iterative nature of that scientific process. But also at the beginning, it all started with this example of how one tiny little image in a movie, just this group of teenagers boarding this spaceship like it's nothing. You can't say that that has too much to do with the plot or the story itself, but it is an inspirational image that can ripple out and affect people in unexpected ways. And I think Max's story speaks to that beautifully. It's a fantastic story, Max. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thinking about these type of things, it's like, that was the kind of stuff that our society, you know, tried to normalize back in the 60s with the fair. Yeah, it's a level of, you know, hope and optimism that just, you know, doesn't necessarily exist in the same way today. And I think that the gesture of the coworker giving the pin is just a huge, it's one of those huge reminders that like, hey, here's, you know, here's something to look up to and here's something to look forward to and here's something that you can take forward. If that ends up improving society and space travel, 
based off of Max's work in the next, you know, 20 or 30 years, then everything with this movie is 100% worth it. So. Absolutely. And it calls to mind just that visual image from the end credits of the movie where the one pin webs off into 10 to 20 and 30, 100, and it turns into a, a worldwide spread of interconnected pins. And, you know, this is one small drop in a bucket, but the influence like you're saying, could could be colossal, particularly on the life of this one person and how he proceeds in his career after having experienced his own version of this story that fell off the screen and into his real life. These, these messages of inspiration can hit us from unexpected corners. You know, I don't know how many people who saw the movie would single out that particular image of the Pinvitation sequence as being as revolutionary as he did, but it gets lodged in your head and sometimes these images don't leave you. And that's something that movies can do that not a lot of other art forms can. It's these indelible moments of observable action. It's how these characters are behaving. It's not just the fact that someone says in this world, there are teenage astronauts. It's the actual characterization of how casual it is to them. It's just a group of friends boarding a spaceship and this is part of their new everyday normal. And that becomes the inspirational goal. It's not necessarily the gleaming city in the distance. It's what that city enables people to do. And so it's just great to hear from someone who so fully was inspired by that image and the the actual messages of the movie to go along with it. So Max, you're welcome back on the show to give us an update on how your work is going anytime. And for today's segment, we'll be covering Casey's Blast from the Past adventure. For those following along, the runtime today is 36 minutes and 15 seconds to 46 minutes and 30 seconds, so about 10 minutes of the movie. After being trapped in a Florida swamp after the battery in her pin experience runs out, uh, Casey goes home and wakes up her little brother in the dead of night and asks him, Nate, we can't do it! Dad, change the password to his computer. Do you know it? And so what this tells me, Hasten, is that Casey is this science whiz kid and she doesn't have a computer. I don't know if this is a situation where NASA engineers aren't being paid very much, uh, but their house is pretty darn nice, so... I can't think they're that badly off. Or maybe he's making a calculated parenting move by not giving her a computer. Or do you think it's a case where Casey is firmly in the mobile first generation of technology interface? What do you think there? Maybe she got grounded for trying to tear down a rocket launching site. Now, oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You smell like swamp. Tell me the password and you can go back to sleep. Nate, in his delusional just woken up state, uh, first observes that she smells like swamp. And so little Nate is turning this into a 4D movie. And now we're all smelling a swamp as Casey comes in. And uh, she explains that her phone got soaked in a lagoon. That's why she can't uh, go on the internet from her phone. And she plops it down on the bed right next to him. And I'm going to say, it, you don't even really have to look too close to notice that that phone is not just soaked in a swamp. It looks like she took a sledgehammer to it. It's cracked. It's bent. The little sides are peeling off of it. Something else happened to this phone. I don't know if in the frustration of being in the swamp, she she threw it across the asphalt. But something else is going on with that phone. This is not merely a water damage that you could soak in rice. What are we looking for? So Casey needs to know more about this mysterious pin that she's been given. And what does she do? Like any good collector or Harvard researcher, they go straight to eBay for more information. 
Now, we can't see exactly what their search terms are here in this eBay search, but I figure we could reverse engineer and figure out what those search terms are by looking at the titles of the listings of the items that come up before they find the Tomorrowland pin. 14 karat gold, vintage round pin, very rare collector's pin, Russian heritage. Lots of different capitalizations. This feels like an authentic eBay listing. So we know that they searched something about a pin. Maybe the word vintage is in there. Maybe even round. Maybe vintage round pin. And they got 15,000 results. (laughs) And clearly the scene was edited down because they weren't scrolling through. And then they have to narrow it down. They have to exactly. keep narrowing got, it down. See, that's in the extended version of this. This sequence could have been 30 minutes because we've all had these internet K-holes where we're looking for ever more specific uh, eBay items. The second one is 1939 New York World's Fair square vintage pin bronze collector's items. Now, okay, so that's a square pin. So I'm going to guess that my previous guess of it being a vintage round pin. Well, that's not it. So maybe it's just vintage pin. Maybe they searched vintage uh, pin. Good to note that that 1939 pin also is best offer. So somebody could get somebody could get a good deal on that one <laughs> if they're willing to play ball. Yeah. The next one is a 1933 World's Fair vintage round pin memorabilia that says "I was there." Now I know about the 1939 World's Fair. I know about the 1964 World's Fair. But was there a 1933 World's Fair? Was that the Chicago World's Fair? Oh, yes, of course. The 1933 World's Fair was the Century of Progress International Exposition Mm. in the city of Chicago. Wonderful. You know, it seems like there's a lot more World's Fairs than even I knew existed. And so many of them are represented in this movie and mythology. The next uh, eBay item on their search is a vintage round memorabilia pin. I have seen the future. It's mentioned in Before Tomorrowland from the uh, 39 Fair, the General Motors Futurama. The next listing is a World's Fair Vintage Round Pins, perfect for the collector, three random pins in a set. And these are just three pins that were elsewhere, uh, individual listings on this list that have now been combined into a three set. Very accurate to the eBay experience. And that one also, of all of the listings, that one has the most number of bids at five bids. People like a bargain. In this universe, when people are so hyped up on the apocalypse, when you're having an oncoming uncertain economy, and you want to get all these at once. You want to hit three at once. The next one, is an I Have Seen the Future World's Fair pin, Vintage Rare, another. So this is one of the more common of them, just as in our reality. Another 1933 World's Fair Vintage Round Collector's pin, I Was There. And then a 1964 New York World's Fair Escorter Greyhound pin, based on the small vehicle that was seen zooming around the World's Fair, both in real life and in the movie. Now, is this design a real vintage pin, or was this something that they created to tie into the movie's World's Fair scene? As far as I've seen when it comes to New York World's Fair merchandise, there was no specific Greyhound-like escorter pin. My guess is, is that this is a reference to actually the really popular and now very sought-after collectible escorter toys that would sell like crazy on eBay. They would sell for hundreds of dollars. One of the most popular toys at the fair this little tin toy of the Greyhound Escorter that you could buy. What a cool concept, right? I purchased one of those in the hopes that the Tomorrowland reaction figures would be able to fit inside. And when it was a little bit too small to fit them in, I sold that baby right back on eBay again. It has no place in the Tomorrowland Times Museum. It is a really cool toy, though, and in the, in the classic tin toy tradition. And then we have a generic American flag uh, vintage pin collector's item. And then, okay, here we go. Here it is. 
you recognize it right away. It's this really extreme close-up on the on the 1984 Tomorrowland pin. And the title here on the search results is 1964 World's Fair Vintage Pin, Extremely Rare Collectible in all caps. And then there's one more listing underneath it just to pad things out. Vintage American Political Round Pins, many to choose from. And, you know, it's just kind of a generic picture of a bunch of pins. And so when Casey spots it, you know, she calls it out right away and has him stop and he clicks on it. But when the page loads up, this is where things get interesting. The title of the listing has changed here. So eBay in this film works very differently to eBay in the real world. Now the title is Extremely Rare Collectible Pin Commemorating the 1964 World's Fair 20th Anniversary. Now to me, this reads more like a description than a title, but here it's been used as the title. It's in all caps. So since this was listed by the folks at Blast from the Past, we can surmise that those audio animatronic people aren't very good at eBay. They aren't very good at creating a a normal eBay listing. And so they're just going to be written off as some kind of elderly person who doesn't know what they're doing. The real part that breaks the illusion here is that the price is listed as NA, not applicable, and it's a buy it now listing. Certainly, you can't possibly list something on eBay with no price on it. So either they're trying to tell me that these AAs from Governor Nix have infiltrated the highest ranks of eBay in order to create a backdoor for crazy listings such as this, or there's another solution to this what why isn't the movie calling attention to it and certainly i saw reactions from a lot of folks when the movie came out that said i don't understand how ebay is being used in this scene well in truth yes these robots do not know how to use ebay but at the very least in the screenplay they hung a lantern on this and particularly had casey call out that fact now in the script after nate asks if casey is on marijuana They find the eBay listing, Casey asks, what are they selling it for? And Nate says, they're not, they want to buy one. And then he explicitly clicks on a link in the listing that takes them to the Blast from the Past website. So yes, in the script, the robots still don't understand how eBay works, but at very least we knew the filmmakers do, and they were trying to address that. But of course, this proved to be too much shoe leather, as they call it in the business. And they cut it all out and just had an invisible cut where we don't even see or hear Nate click away from eBay and onto the Blast from the Past site. And as he's reading the title, he's automatically onto the site, and they make a hilarious quip. Well, this site is like ancient. And indeed it is ancient. It's a very old looking site. Now, before we dive into that site, I do want to point out that the username for the eBay listing is BFTP Store, which at the time was a real eBay user. I'm assuming uh, registered by those internet practical jokesters, Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof, or maybe just some poor intern. But at some point, it disappeared. So when you look for it now, it is not an active username And I'm going to assume either Disney wised up and deleted it or it was purged due to inactivity because I'm going to assume they never actually listed any items on there. Experts and purveyors of the most extensive selection of space age collectibles in the world. So when they go to the Blast from the Past website, you can see at the very top of the screen that the URL reads blastfromthepast-houston.com which is registered by the same corporate registrar that holds all of Disney's domains, but it doesn't point anywhere. That's not the only URL for the Blast from the Past store, is it, Hasten? That's right. As part of the marketing campaign that they did, that viral marketing campaign where they released a bunch of Blast from the Past videos, we discovered a different URL, 
blastfromthepastsuperstore.com. Now, this is still owned by Disney, and it still forwards to Amazon. However, at the time of release, they did have like a curated Amazon shopping list of uh, Tomorrowland-related items that has since gone defunct, and now it just forwards you to a generic page on Amazon, unfortunately. And Disney should really loop that back into something Tomorrowland-related for any curious souls that stumble onto it now and in the future. Come on down to Blast from the Past Apocalypse Day Sale. If you have any needs in the sci-fi category, come to Blast from the Past. So on the site in the movie, the physical address for the store reads 3678 Marketson Street, Houston, Texas 77002, which, as with Casey's address seen on her ID, is entirely fictional. The real-world filming location for the Blast from the Past Superstore brings us into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. That's right, Haston. This whole sequence was filmed on the Canadian motion picture backlot, which they redressed with a beautiful facade for the Blast from the Past Superstore. So it wasn't in Texas, nay, Houston, not even America. It was in Canada. That was, you know, some other interesting things that were filmed on that backlot, Haston? No, I don't. Well, if you visit the Canadian Motion Picture Park website, oh, this backlot has been used in such films as Tron Legacy, which we've mentioned on the show before as a spiritual cousin to Tomorrowland. But the most interesting thing on this website with the list of credits, Tron Legacy, yes, is listed along with many other fabulous films. Can you guess what film is not listed on this list? Is it Tomorrowland? (laughs) Tomorrowland does not appear on this list. So uh, you have to reference fan-made sites like the fabulous uh, moviemaps.org to find out more about these locations. I think that I saw that I went to the future. Can I come too? Not yet. So Casey starts to plan her road trip and she's asking Nate to keep her secret. He asks if he can come along and she says, not yet. A promise which will ultimately be fulfilled by the film's end. Her optimism is proving infectious. This scene always takes me back to that wonderful moment in Speed Racer. Can I come with you, Rex? What? Can we come with you? No. Why not? You'll understand when it's your turn. Now, there's no mirroring moment in this, but indeed, this is not the last we are going to see of Nate Newton. Budding optimist. Let's talk about this road trip for a second. She gets on a Greyhound bus, but let's talk about how kind of ridiculous this is, right? She lives in Florida, and she gets on a Greyhound bus to go to Houston. The archived Greyhound bus schedule says that that trip would have taken about two and a half days. So the length of this film, in terms of time in the real world... It's a little fuzzy. They don't explicitly spell it out, but it is many days. I mean, even leading up to this point, you know, there are many days in between when Casey initially gets the pin and this adventure starts to go down. So, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that the entire adventure of this film is going to clock in in at least a week. Has to. Has to. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. They then, well, and this is for a later episode, they then drive from Houston up to New York, which, you know is at least a, at least a 10 to 12 hour drive. Now she's a robot and she doesn't have to sleep so they can go straight through, but still. And I'm going to assume they installed some kind of uh, police uh, radio interceptor into Athena so she can know when there's a speed trap before there's a speed trap and she can just push the limits of that vehicle. And I'm going to make a little note here. Next week when we get to that truck, 
we're going to look up the specs of it and see what the top speed is so we can get a really accurate upper threshold for the length of this thing. Excellent observation, Hasten. <laughs> now, that bus isn't a Greyhound just because of the World's Fair coincidence, you know. Frank arrives at the World's Fair on a Greyhound bus, as so many did at the time. No, no, no. This was a promotional partnership between Greyhound and Disney for this movie, complete with dedicated advertisements, including a sweepstakes to attend the film's premiere. And if anyone out there knows who won that Greyhound grand prize, you write in and let us know, and we'll have him on the show, and we'll hear all about that glitzy, glamoury premiere that we were off to the sidelines observing. I know. that The winner of this just walked right by us. It, two ships crossing in the night. My favorite thing about this Greyhound bus promotion is underneath the comments, no one cares about the movie. Every single comment underneath the next stop Tomorrowland sweepstakes is a rant about their bus trip. and, And my favorite comment, I hope you don't have to take the bus if you win. Ooh, that's a deep, deep burn and a pretty good one. But, you know, it uh, it speaks to the uh, social media angst that this movie seems to have predicted in many ways. Also, let us not forget that some of those Greyhound graphics and production art for the film were also on display at the Tomorrowland promotional exhibit in the queue for Disney's Magic Eye Theater, which would then be renamed the Tomorrowland Theater. Some think it's for the land, but we know better. It's for the film. And the mural on its side is the specific skyline from the movie, and it stands to this day, as far as we know. We haven't been in the park in a year, and that'll be the first thing we check when we head back in through those gates. Does the mural stand or not? Because it probably costs them more to paint over it than just leave it. What I think is particularly cool about the fact that these guys are about to get a sneak peek of the movie is that The movie itself is about a a person who gets a sneak peek at Tomorrowland. Um, Just a very, very brief... That's super meta. Yeah, it's it's super meta. (laughs) Just a super brief glimpse of of something, but it it, it makes them want to see more. The future will begin in six minutes. So Casey boards this bus, which drives past a Toxicosmos 3, nowhere to go, billboard, speaking to the apocalyptic cultural effects of the monitor's influence. And inside, she's doodling that sketch we mentioned in the last episode of the city as she can remember it from her pinvitation with the monitor sphere prominently displayed in the middle. I actually relate to this moment because Casey is in this state where the pin is dead. She can't revisit Tomorrowland, so she's revisiting it in her head and she's doodling what she remembers. And it's not quite accurate, but it's more the emotional impression of it. And certainly when I was a kid, I would go to the movies... I would see a movie that wouldn't be on home video for quite a while or pre-internet. We didn't have access to instant imagery from these movies and I would try and draw what I would remember from it. So Casey and I are two peas in a pod in this sequence. So this exterior shot of the bus passing the billboard was filmed at North Fraser Way between Abbotsford and Tillicum, which is of course in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. Unfortunately, that billboard, if it was ever there, is no longer there, and we are going to be unable to rent it out to put an actual Toxicosmos 4 billboard for all those local residents who so fondly remember the day they filmed the shot of the bus passing by. Now, this fictional film, Toxicosmos 3, Nowhere to Go, I consider this a kind of Brad Bird staple. He loves to put fake movies in the background of his own movies. We see this at the end of Incredibles 2, and that's where he also embedded his A113 
reference, which he has always want to do. I look at Toxicosmos as one in a line, at one in a lineage of Brad Bird uh, fictional movies sub-universe within the universe of his films. Now, in the bus, this is the first scene in which we start to see Casey wearing her main multi-layered costume for the film. Uh, but right here, it doesn't have the sleeveless hoodie and the top jacket on, so she's just got her red shirt, and that's not even the bottom layer. She's got a yellow tank top underneath that red shirt. So if you think about it, by the time she builds up her main costume, how many layers is that? Tank top, button-up shirt, sleeveless hoodie, top jacket. That's a four-layer outfit for someone from Florida who's going to Texas. And I'm going to say this is purely a stylistic decision on her part and nothing to do with what kind of weather condition she's going to endure. But you know what? This movie made her a fashion icon, and now we see the Florida youths dressing like this every time we visit Disney World. Now back at home, Nate is about to take his bicycle out for a spin when he encounters Athena holding, what is it, Hasten? A variety pack of double stuff grab-and-go Oreos. Now this pack includes both golden double stuffed Oreos and traditional double stuffed Oreos. So she's really prepared for any contingency here because you don't want to guess and assume what type of Oreos people like. A big question that I've always had is, is that why would Athena herself be carrying Oreos? She's a robot. She doesn't have to eat anything. I think she needed a quick ruse and she stopped at the nearest grocery store and just picked up the first thing that she saw. And she had a vague concept in her programming of what a Girl Scout was. And she was simply hoping that she would not be questioned. And so, you know, start at the surface level. I'm here to deliver cookies. Well, what do you mean? You're not really wearing a vest. Nate is not buying into this one bit. He's poking holes in her story left and right. And I actually think this is a really funny scene. There were some showings where the whole audience thought it was really funny and other showings that I saw where I was the only one laughing and I did not let that deter me. I think this is a very funny scene, an underappreciated bit of comedy. And I love the bit when she just drops her accent because she seems to have gotten a hint of what's actually going on. And so... The facade has been dropped. She needs to know where she went. And Nate asks her if she's from the future. And so it's a great line. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole film, because you have that childlike, you know, curiosity of everything that's going on and the whole like conspiracy of what he what it's just excellent line delivery there on the are you from the future? It's fantastic. And then she responds, you clearly understand, which is hilarious if you know what the movie is about, because she's not from the future. And I think this this joke that sometimes doesn't land with people actually plays into some of the misconceptions and misinterpretations people have about it, because I still routinely see messages from people who think this movie is about time travel, who think this movie is about going to an actual future state through some kind of time machine. And indeed, Tomorrowland, the film contains no time travel whatsoever. Uh, there is no time machine in this movie. It's all alternate dimensions and, and skipping between them. But if you know that, this moment plays really funny because she's basically saying, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm from the future. Tell me what I need to know. She may be the future. She is the future, Frank Walker, but she is not from the future. Aren't you from the future? You clearly understand. And then the movie cuts two blasts from the past. Presumably a couple of days later, Casey has arrived. Athena is presumably hot on her tail. She arrives at Blast from the Past, which I kind of still wonder, was Blast from the Past named after the store of the same name in Burbank's Magnolia Park, right by Disney? I wonder, is this a direct reference, or is it just the most obvious thing you would call a nostalgia store, perhaps even named after the Brendan Fraser film? 
Inside, she's greeted by every piece of sci-fi memorabilia imaginable. And among that memorabilia, I've got a bit of a personal story. Hasten, I know you've heard this one many times, but I hope you'll indulge me for a little bit of a personal reverie of serendipity. Absolutely. So on two of the shelves in Blast from the Past, one right behind the main counter up on the top left, and then one in the back of the row of displayed ray guns behind Casey when she's facing the desk, you can see a white box with a red, black, and yellow label slapped on the front of a Star Trek phaser pistol model kit. It was a classic model kit that was a fan-made item back in the 90s and became a very popular hobby kit. Let the audience know with this personal connection that you have to this phaser. Well, yes, Haston, as it turns out, my father produced that model kit. And as a wee boy, I helped box up those cardboard boxes and slap the label on top and put the little injection molded part trees into those and got them off to fans all over the world. It became a pretty popular kit. And the reason this strikes me as such an incredible coincidence of being in Tomorrowland is that it mirrors our experience. My dad got into some hot water with Paramount for doing those kits back in the day. And indeed, that bootleg kit is not unlike the sort of guerrilla style bootleg alternate reality game that you and i made for this movie which we hadn't seen yet and had no way of knowing that that model kit would appear inside the film so it does feel like a little bit of my own personal history is hiding on the shelf of this movie in which i had a kind of copacetic experience the one that my father had back in the day i just think it's really neat that there's a that there's the idea of this this box that you specifically packaged something you might have physically touched might be in this scene which is just Again, a connection to the movie you never expected. Completely. And, you know, I'm sure that Occam's Razor, the easy explanation for this is just there were a lot of those kits out there. And when the set dressers needed things to fill out the shelves, they went to the real world equivalent of these Blast from the Past stores that are all over Southern California. And it would not be uncommon for you to walk into one of those and find a phase two model kit. It's just a strange, unexplainable coincidence. Sale this week. Front three shelves. 70% off. Oh, no thanks. I'm not here to buy anything. So Casey gets to the back of the store and she finds Ursula Gernsbach, played by the inimitable Catherine Hahn. She's staring at an old CRT TV set with footage of a nuclear explosion mushroom cloud, adding to that visual motif established earlier in the film. Yeah, so in that same viral commercial that we talked about before with the different URL you have the two of them wearing shirts with that mushroom cloud on them. I do wonder if there was any instances of that. You know, we had it on the wall when Casey drives by. We have it here. Were there instances in additional locations that we never got to see sprinkled throughout the rest of the movie? Because, you know, we've got a couple, but... Well, we know we had the doomsday preppers, too, from the last episode that we talked about. Even if we're not seeing it, its effect is felt. I was hoping that you could tell me about this. So Casey asks about her pin, 
and Ursula summons her husband from the back room. That's Hugo Gernsbach, played by Keegan-Michael Key. I love that guy. And he was so very nice to us when we were on the press line at the premiere. And he showed us the wonderful Tomorrowland pin cufflinks that Damon Lindelof had made, especially for him and the cast and crew. And he's just a real mensch of a guy. We are the optimists, yeah. sir. We love the this optimists. film. Optimists. Yeah. May so we see your pin? cufflinks? Yes, you may. Oh, good oh, lord. This is the better one. I don't want to show that one because it's pretentious because I have a monogram show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that is Damon Lindelof gave him that. His character was named after the inventor, writer, editor, and magazine publisher best known for publications including Amazing Stories, an issue of which was included in that mysterious 1952 box that announced the film. Hugo Gernsbach, a classic American figure in science fiction, and now a really interesting fake name for an audio animatronic that's trying to hunt down people with Tomorrowland pins. I think I would probably choose a different fake name. Maybe for Nick's, it's one of this ironic things, right? Of like, I can give him the most, I can give this person the most obvious name possible and society doesn't care. So do you think Nick's is individually naming all of these? Like he named Athena, you know, after the Greek goddess, but did he name this particular robot maybe after a publisher of a magazine that he may or may not love. I'm going to assume that Nix's estimation of science fiction nerds is not very high. And so I'm going to think that maybe Nix didn't think too highly on Hugo Gernsbach. If indeed he was an actual member of plus ultra or just someone within the culture. Uh, and maybe this was a bit of a joke naming this particularly lowly audio animatronic. I mean, look, planting someone in the middle of Texas for the purpose of doing this, he must have animatronics everywhere. So he might have just gotten to the bottom of the list and run out of names. My personal theory about why it's in Houston, and I thought this when the film first started, was because of the space program being in Houston. And if you're looking for a if you're looking for a sort of concentrated place that Athena would probably hand out pins looking for these sort of science-based optimists, what do you have? You have Florida, the Space Coast. And you have Houston. And so that made a lot of sense to me. Right. It might even be Nick's double thinking the whole thing and trying to reverse engineer where he thinks Athena might go. And so process of elimination, we put some AAs there. And then we have a few units that we can dispatch in major cities whenever we need an emergency situation. And uh, that'll cover his bases. He'll find all those pins. That's another one of the things in the commercial is that they're very clearly playing up the idea. That whole viral campaign around Blast from the Past, which was really just a Twitter account and one video, was just them saying, we want Tomorrowland pins. Bring in your Tomorrowland pins. And so the, the social media concept behind it was that they would have real audience members send in pictures of their Tomorrowland pins to be retweeted. Uh, by the official Blast from the Past account. And that was kind of a pin in the cap for our Plus Ultra experience because once the finale occurred and our players had started to pick up the paperback books that we had distributed to use bookstores all over the United States, some of our players would tweet the Blast from the Past account, hey, look what I found with the cover of the book on it. And Blast from the Past actually retweeted it. So, you know, it was a little bit of that canonization of our totally fan fiction story that allowed it to bleed uh into the official fiction it was fun i totally forgot about that yeah that was a <clears throat> that was a fun moment i know that that thing was probably a very last minute ditch effort to do something interactive leading up to the release and even though it's really just this one small corner of the movie this blast from the past sequence is a lot of people's favorite scene in the movie and I don't think I'd call it my favorite scene. Certainly, I enjoy the really low 
sort of melancholic version of the plus ultra theme that starts to come in when they're describing what plus ultra is. I think that's a really emotional moment actually. And the way they describe it, even if they are the villains as they will be revealed to be, you know, this is Casey's first time learning what they are. And you can see that look on her face that we could relate to so well, just the idea of this group of people who went and said, we need to go find a place just for ourselves. This is what is so frustrating to me about this scene is that, so, you know, we see the Japanese marketing, which includes the original lines that are in this scene where Casey goes like at Disney, right? And that was a personal pet peeve of mine. If you read the script, she actually says like in Disney world, which would make sense. Cause it's like, you know, 40 miles away, you know. That actually brings up a question, Aston. Was Casey Newton a Disney World annual pass holder? Or did she just go once a year, maybe once every two years? Resident discounts. Not the future, honey. Tomorrowland. 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 Like, at Disney? Oh, honey. (laughs) That theme park was just a cover for the real thing in case anybody came snooping around. Old Wall was one of them. You know, you have this great scene that explains all of it. And like, I remember sitting in the theater, we're in the Chinese. The challenge here is, is that you see Walt's picture up next to the door. I'm all ready for it. I'm all ready for the the Walt Disney explanation. And then it never happens. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. It's been cut from the film. Why? My personal guess is that they became uncomfortable with more Walt Disney connections, given it felt a little bit like this historical rewriting. And I remember that specifically during like some of the marketing and stuff, it became like there there was definitely an uncomfortableness that they had during development that then didn't happen during the actual like movie time. Yeah. And, you know, there were aspects of The Optimist that really made me think we might actually see Walt not dead in this movie. Like, I, and that was one of the more outlandish ideas. But certainly you had even on the kind of hidden double groove vinyl, the narration implying these ideas about life extension efforts. And that we can look back and know that it was referencing Nick's. But at the time, being in a very Disney context, I, I thought there was a non-zero chance that it was about Walt. And so when the movie made oblique references to Walt, but never explicit references. Yeah, there was a little bit of disappointment there. But I think even people who don't dig it online, if you give even half of a thought to how the movie opens with It's a Small World and the Secret Entrance, and then the picture of Walt in the store, you do kind of have to assume he was a member of the society, even if they don't say it, because how else would any of that have been possible if he wasn't? And the deleted scene version that we see, it offered to explain a little bit of how the pen worked itself in a, a, a brief touch of techno babble that went like this. Hugo says, Of course it's real. Though technically you didn't go there. That little gizmo in your hand, it beamed a guided tour into your head. Wi-Fi uplink to the old cerebral cortex. Now, this is an interesting bit of techno babble, but I'm going to say the invocation of Wi-Fi. I think Bluetooth would be more appropriate in this situation. So then in this script, Hugo, for the last scene, says the only way to see it, however, is through contact with one of these. But it's just a fleeting glimpse, a taste. And my favorite line from the script, a one way e-ticket for a single writer. Yes. Super fun theme park kind of niche reference. And I'm so sad that was pulled from the final film. It's a tall order to fit two separate Disney references into one sentence. So they were really cramming them in there. And I think that that speaks to 
why some of these things were pulled out is that there is a stigma outside of, you know, our Disney parks fandom and that community. When this film came out in 2015, the parks were popular, yes, but I don't think as a whole they had developed the lifestyle or mindset that we currently see today that launched, you know, three to four years ago with Instagram and the whole Disney bounding movement and the whole Dapper Day movement and whatever else. I think if this same scene were made today and these same concepts were made today, it'd play a lot different because they know they would be tapping into this sort of cultural zeitgeist in America. And it wouldn't just be this, oh, this just feels like this giant kind of over promotion for our theme parks. Like that's kind of part of the synergy today, right? We have a potential Magic Kingdom universe, you know, movie series coming and all of these other parks related things on streaming services. Like today, these couple casual references to Walt and the park, it'd be totally fine. Absolutely. I think there's no doubt that if it was made today, these references would be in the movie, but kind of trying to put my mindset into where they were back then. I get it. Not only is there some kind of doubt about being seen as too on brand for for a Disney movie, I also think that this scene just on its own dramatically is pulling a whole lot of weight already. And so how many things can this scene really hold before it just falls apart? It's a really pivotal moment for this movie. And so I would imagine they did a lot of fine tuning where they were pulling these things out and putting them back in and trying to find a balance of exposition where what should they be explaining? What should the main takeaway of this be? Because it's not just the stakes of the plot. It's also the themes that are going to resonate throughout the rest of it. And so I think getting a really concise concept of what plus ultra is and not necessarily the ramifications of what that information means in terms of, Oh, that means Walt Disney was a member, you know, keeping it to just this core idea, it makes it a lot leaner. And so I can understand it from that perspective, even if I personally would prefer to see those restored. I think I'm going to go now. Thanks for your help. Thousand dollars if you tell me where you acquired the pin. I don't know. Ten thousand. Was it a girl? A little girl? I don't know what you guys are talking about. Have a nice day. Enjoy your freak out. Tell us where she is and you will be spared. So once Casey realizes that things are going south with this conversation, she decides to leave, but Hugo and Ursula pull ray guns on her and they blast a hole in the ceiling just to show that they mean business. Uh, So this is what they've been looking for. And I'm going to guess that, you know, they were ready to blow their cover, both literally and figuratively, because, hey, this is the last pin. We need to get it. Who knows how many they've already gotten. So they're willing they're willing to destroy the shop in order to make sure that this kid doesn't get away. And in the screenplay. Casey grabs a ray gun from off of that Buck Rogers mannequin that we see and tries to use it for self-defense, which uh, it ends up not working. A bunch of little sparks come out of the front. And I'm going to guess that this explains why the Casey action figure came with a little gun accessory, even though she never actually ended up holding one in the movie. critical finale of this scene super fun weapon right athena has this time bomb that freezes time inside of it a great physical effect you've got that great incredibles reference the fun thing about this is that this is one of the only things that got outside of the film as well because right around the time that um this movie was coming out. Disney's Infinity game was coming out. Disney Infinity. And the release of that game had a four pack of power discs. That's right. 
And one of them was her weapon from the movie. It was fun. It was fun to use in the game. And uh, it was sad to see that game go. But it is a great little uh, time capsule to see that its its height was right as Tomorrowland was about to come out. And so even though the movie didn't end up being a success, we got this little interactive portion that we were able to have. And I think it also had some skins that you could use for the environment and Ursula's ray gun as well. So there was a couple other objects. So that was a lot of fun. This is a time bomb stop sign, but not for long. What? Listen to me. The sphere is collapsing and you're in the line of fire. So at this point, a fight ensues between the two adult robots and that one heroic little girl robot that bursts through the window to save the day and get Casey out of the line of fire. Literally. We have to go. They're about to self-destruct. We have to go now. This scene is a lot of fun. Uh, it's very dynamic. I think Bradburn shot it really well. You can always kind of tell the geography of what's happening. They start to use physical objects from the shop to bash each other's heads in. And it, you know, it ends with a little girl decapitating a robot. So it's something that I can't say I've ever seen before. Uh, this triggers Hugo uh, to self-destruct when he's been run through. And uh, Casey and Athena run out of the shop into the street before it explodes in a giant fireball. And man, if you freeze frame this, that fireball almost hits a bunch of pedestrians that are walking by. And Casey and Athena are so worried about getting out themselves, they don't really have time to warn anybody else. So it looks like this little old man actually gets blown over, but he's just gone behind a car. So we don't actually see. I'm going to assume he's okay just for my own sake. Get up. They'll be coming. Now that we're out on the street, this is, of course, back at the section that is in the Canadian back lot. Uh, down the street, you can barely see this little movie theater. And this is going to bring us to our recurring segment, the Museum Minute. History, art, salvaging it. We'd rather it was lost forever. So we have a couple of things that appear either in the Blast from the Past store or throughout the set dressing of this street. And they are posters that were made for fictional movies, none of them for Toxicosmos, of course, but uh, other fictional science fiction properties that obliquely speak to the themes of Tomorrowland. And they didn't put a ton of time into them, so I think it's a you know Photoshop comp of illustrations and stock images and things like that. But we've got a couple of posters from that movie theater and a couple of mini posters that were being sold on a rack uh, in the blast from the past store, some of the most easily, some of the most easy to acquire props from this movie for anyone that's looking uh, to start collecting are the toys that appeared in the shop. A lot of those were sold in a liquidation sale after the film, and you can find tin toys, robots, things like that. I'm trying to focus our efforts for the Tomorrowland Times Museum on things that were custom made for the film, and so that is why I gravitated towards some of those fun posters that have like inside jokes of crew members' names uh, on the credit blocks for those fake movies. So those are pretty fun. The biggest piece from this sequence that we're covering today, however, is one of the crown jewels of our collection. We have one of Hugo's vests. Uh, it was probably used by a stunt person because, you know, they have a big fight, so they would have need to have made a lot of them. These vests were made exactly the same as any of the other vests that were worn by this character uh, by the same company that Disney went to uh, to make them for the movie. And if you look at them, just like his big human eye belt buckle, there's a paisley pattern with hand embellished little human eyeballs throughout the pattern on his vest. So it's a really 
uh, fun garment, and it's going to look great on display when we finally open our museum of the future in 30 or 40 years. I hope it doesn't take us that long. I hope for the best and uh, prepare for the worst. I don't, I don't know what I, I can't get, get in the car, Casey! How do you know my name? Just guess in the car. So Casey and Athena are on the run, peeling out in a stolen car towards another Toxicosmos billboard at the end of the street. Just as this road trip is about to kick into full force, we've reached the end of our segment for this episode. Casey's finally gotten some answers, but not nearly enough for her taste, and she's going to have to trust this bizarre little girl who just saved her life. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message like we heard at the start of the show, we'd love to hear any memories you might have from the first time you saw Tomorrowland and we might just play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we turn down the road to Pittsfield. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers, dreamers can, can stick, stick together. together.